Hi, this is John from Dairyland Frights, and we have a treat for you. Over this long summer holiday, Memorial Day weekend, we have a special show, our best of so far. So Megan, Brooke, and myself just want you to listen, lean back, uh, have your favorite cocktail, and enjoy, and stay spooky. Hello, spooky friends. Welcome to another episode of Dairyland Frights, the paranormal podcast that covers everything spooky, creepy, and mysterious in the Midwest. My name is John, and I'm here with my two co-hosts, Brooke and Megan. How are you doing? Pretty good. Excited to good. hear about Door County from Megan today. Yeah. I'm Megan also was... doing well. <laughs> Sounds exciting. Um, so, today... As you heard, just heard, Megan is going to talk about the most haunted spots in Door County, Wisconsin. But first, Brooke, you have to do this because this is awesome stuff, <laughs> is going to offer a bit of paranormal news. <laughs> Go ahead, Brooke. Yeah, oh, I'm excited. Uh, so we have talked about Zach Baggins a couple times on this podcast. He is, uh, I, I was going to say friend of the show, but that's not accurate. <laughs> <laughs> um, he's a, a character of the of the show and of the por- paranormal um, community for sure. So uh, I keep tabs on you know what's going on with him and ghost adventures. And same thing, like I have a really close my best friend Betsy. We've uh, watched ghost adventures like our whole lives. So we we like to stay up to date on the drama. So there's been some drama going on with Zach. Um, I, I wanted to get you guys caught up because I feel like this is gonna continue to unfold over the next few weeks and months so um so to give you a little bit of backstory so there's this guy uh dakota Layden, and he um actually kind of became a little bit famous by um doing like parodies of ghost adventures on youtube and they were very funny and then he ended up being on the show as like a guest um of like quite a few years back and from that he actually ended up with his own uh show on the travel channel uh called destination fear which was produced by zach baggins and so they were like pretty good friends but they recently like had a falling out so destination fear was canceled and zach baggins like was no longer listed as a producer i believe and so people kind of came to the conclusion that uh zach was like sabotaging the show because it got like too popular and was like overtaking hmm. ghost adventures and ratings or something along those lines this is all allegedly i'm not really sure if that's accurate but dakota kind of confirmed that zach had something to do with it um and after that nick groff kind of got into the mix and nick used to be on ghost adventures like nine years ago he um left the show and it was kind of like not understood why that happened um but he kind of like took Dakota's side, I guess, uh, publicly. And he put out a video um, about Zach mostly, although he refer it's kind of funny because he refers to Zach in this video as the host. Like he doesn't really say Zach's yeah. name exactly, <laughs> but, uh, but everyone can assume <laughs> that he's referring to Zach. Um, so he said a couple things. So, um, Apparently, Dakota told him that 
on one of their show recordings, Zach like walked in laughing, saying like, oh, Nick's never going to work in America again um, because he gave the network Travel Channel an ultimatum to basically choose between Zach or Nick. And as we all know, Travel Channel is kind of like the hub for like paranormal content nowadays for whatever reason. That's like mm-hmm. all they really show is like ghost content. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. It's not really like travel stuff no. anymore. It's traveling to haunted locations. But uh. But yeah, so like Nick has pretty much been ousted from the Travel Channel because Zach like made it that way and Dakota like confirmed that. Um, and also like there was this story going around that Aaron was saying that Nick was fired from the show because Nick was going behind Zach and Aaron's back creating a new show without them knowing. But apparently, according to Nick, that's false and that they were all allowed to produce other shows alongside Ghost Adventures. And apparently Zach was also doing that. Um he also claimed that Zach has a really bad ego, that he treats people really poorly, um, that he blocks everyone who questions him because one person actually in the uh, in one of the questions they asked Nick was like, oh, I questioned like some tiny thing about him and he blocked me on Twitter. And I was like, girl, same. Um, <laughs> literally. So uh, yeah, apparently it's yeah, not, yeah, yeah. Uh, not just me. Um, and that he creates like a hostile environment. Um, and it was kind of funny. So in the end, uh, he says something along the lines of like, oh, I can't wait to bring more real paranormal content to everyone. And he was like very heavy on the word real, almost like implying that Ghost Adventures is like kind of fake. I don't think it used to be, honestly, but I think, you know, nowadays. Yeah. Also, similarly, Dakota also implied uh, some things. Um, he implied specifically that Ghost Adventures does not get locked down um, from dusk until dawn, like they claim they do, and that they just like go on site for like a couple hours and leave like they used to get locked down (laughs) all night but they don't anymore so so yeah uh, a lot going on in the ghost adventures um (laughs) cinematic universe at the moment but uh so brooke what do you make out of all this um you're a fan of the show and, and i'm a fan i'm you know megan is too but what do you make out of all this you know i honestly am not like watched a ton since nick left because it just kind of wasn't the same dynamic anymore and i didn't like it as Mm -hmm. much but i feel like it's all like a little bit petty to be honest but i do i do still like believe dakota and nick i think that they are probably telling the truth that zach i mean he seems like he would be kind of a jerk so (laughs) i'm not like (laughs) i'm not exactly surprised that he would like try to oust other people from being on the travel channel like in terms of paranormal content creators but at the same time though like zach kind of did make the travel channel what it is and made ghost Mm -hmm. adventures what it is um so in a way i guess you know if he wants to have control over what of that i guess maybe that's like his that's up to him i guess i don't know i think the the travel channel really cares about like what zach thinks and what he wants so wow okay yeah I don't know. Um, Megan, do you yeah, do you have any thoughts about this? I mean, I never really took Ghost Adventures super seriously, so <laughs> sure. I guess I can see how that might make sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just this sounds like someone who's gotten a big head. You know, like yeah. like us. We're starting out right now, and once we become more successful, you know, one of knows, us will the other, yeah, for sure. One of the dynamic. <laughs> <laughs> it's gonna be a power dynamic. Yeah, Megan, Brooke yeah. and John going for, at it for sure. 
I'm yeah. going to be on, you guys will be on TikTok. I'll be on Facebook or some lame thing going, yeah. oh yeah, they're light. <laughs> mm-hmm. I look forward to that. That's going to be fun. fun, John. I hope yeah. we get that big, yeah. Backstabbing each other. Oh, sweet. I'll come up with my own clothing line that you guys will hate. <laughs> yes. Then you can block Brooke. Yeah, when I make yeah, fun I'm going to block Brooke. Yeah, right. All right. So, so <laughs> thank you, Brooke. That's really interesting. We will update people, obviously, once more infighting happens, which I'm sure Zach will come up with his version of the story. Mm -hmm. Look forward Um, to that. Yeah. (laughs) So, Megan, let's let's get into Door County and the spooky stuff. All right. Thank you, John. So, Door County is a super special place to me. It's a place that my family and I used to visit growing up, and there's just something like very special about it when you visit it. It doesn't quite feel like you're in Wisconsin. I don't know if there's, you know, a place in your state that kind of feels that way. Just when you're there, it just feels really special. So, this is a a cool spot for me to talk about today, but what I didn't know growing up is that there's actually quite a bit of spooky, creepy history of Door County. So I did some research and I'm going to talk about that today. So a little bit of background, Door County, if you look at Wisconsin, it's kind of shaped like a mitten. Door County is that thumb of the mitten. So it's a peninsula between Green Bay and Lake Michigan in the state of Wisconsin. It's really cool. Would definitely recommend visiting it. Um, It was founded in 1851, and as of 2021, there's just a little bit over 30,000 people who live in Door County, so not quite super big, actually, but um, it's a great place to visit in the summer. There's lots of things to do, especially for outdoorsy people. There's lots of wilderness trails that you can hike. There's different parks you can visit. Something really cool about it is that they have limestone cliffs there and you can actually take your kayak and go kayaking into the caves along the shoreline. So super cool if you want to have a fun destination in Wisconsin. They've got ice cream, horseback riding. Um, Something really cool on Washington Island is they have lavender fields. So you can go see this expansive field of purple flowers and you can take pictures. Super cool. Would definitely recommend going there. Before I get into some of these scary haunted stories that I'm going to tell you guys today, I just wanted to call out a few cool memories that I have from Door County growing up. And I'm going to call those out because I think they're super cool places to visit and things to see if you want to check it out. So the first thing that I absolutely love about Door County is there's this festival in Ephraim, Wisconsin. It's called the Fear Ball. And this is a festival that kind of came about in the 1960s, and it was started to really honor the Scandinavian heritage of the area. And the point of it is to celebrate the end of winter. But the thing I really like about this is that there is symbolism behind the festival, and it is supposed to symbolize burning the winter witch, welcoming summer. Yeah, so how cool is that? So I think it's a, cool. it's a little bit witchy, right up Brooks Alley. Yes, I love that. So with this burning of the winter witch, along the beach line, they build these big cone-shaped bonfires. So they're like big, huge logs. They're oh, like wow. super tall. They're like yeah. probably twice the height of a human adult. And what they do is they set all of these bonfires on fire one by one so you usually do it at night so there's a whole bunch of different huge bonfires burning on the beach 
And the chieftain is the one who lights the first one, lights the second one. And so it's super cool. And something interesting about the fires is that they're really, really hot. So if you're even standing, you know, 20 feet away, it feels like your skin is really hot. So mm, wow. super cool. Huh. But cool. I like that it's symbolic of, you know, burning the winter witch, welcoming summer. It's a nice. great place to go. Um, the next fear ball is going to be on June 17th, 2023, if anyone's interested <laughs> in that. It's awesome. funny. I feel like it's kind of funny that it's not until June because realistically, that's I feel like I feel like even in May, like there still might be a blizzard. So yeah, like yeah, they put yeah. it in June to be safe. Like for sure now <laughs> right. we're free mm -hmm. of the winter wish. <laughs> Good point. For sure. Yeah. In Wisconsin, you never quite know when there's gonna be one last yeah. snow. Uh-huh. We just had one yesterday. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So <laughs> So if you do go to Ephraim, make sure to check out Wilson's Ice Cream Parlor. It's a super cute little parlor that was built in 1906. Mm -hmm. So you can grab your ice cream and watch the Winter Witch burn. <laughs> nice. <laughs> oh, that's sweet. I love that. It's a great, a great yeah, great family-friendly activity. <laughs> All right, two quick things. Some other things that I'd recommend in Door County. There's this place called the Northern Sky Theater. And it's really cool because it's an outdoor theater in the middle of the woods. So you listen to shows while it's dark outside and there's just like trees and birds, lots right. of bugs. Make sure you bring your bug spray. <laughs> mm, yes. But super cool if you want that vibe. And then one last thing I wanted to point out is there's this ice cream shop in Fish Creek and it's called Not Licked Yet, Frozen Custard. <laughs> nice. Right. Kind of fun. So you can get your ice cream, sit next to a creek next door and you can feed the ducks. Nice. Hmm. All right, so that was a little bit too feel good for me. So why don't we get into some scary stuff for Dark Alley? All right. All right. So I did some um, research on Door County. And for some of you who don't know, Door County actually has kind of a dark past behind its name. So um, I'm going to talk a little bit about that today. Uh, there is some debate about the true origin of how it became Door County, but all the different stories kind of point to this death's door as inspiration for the name. It's called Death's Door because there have been a lot of deaths in the water by Door mm. County. So I want to talk about Makes that sense. a little bit today. So a little bit of backstory about Door County. There is this strait that links Lake Michigan and Green Bay between the northern tip of Door County Peninsula and then Washington Island. At its narrowest point, it's only about a mile and a third wide. So not super big, but I've seen it for myself. The water can get super choppy and there can be massive waves. There's hidden underwater rocks and just overall very unpredictable weather. So you really have to be careful when you're mm -hmm. going boating on the water. But this kind of weather and these, you know, unpredictable waves really contributed to the gruesome name of Door County. So I'm going to talk about the first theory of why it might be named Door County. So back in the 1600s, many Native Americans actually perished in the strait during an intertribe battle. And there were, you know, some historic accounts that say members of the Potawatomi set out from Washington Island in order to attack the Winnebago on the mainland. So when the Potawatomi defenders were leaving the island, you know, the weather was pretty calm. It seemed, you know safe enough to leave. But as they were mid-channel, the wind started picking up and, 
you know, they were trying to get to the water or get to the other side, but the wind was picking up and mm. canoes were capsizing. They were hitting rocks and breaking. And it was overall just a, a big, you know, disaster. But the Winnebago continued to fight and both sides ended up losing hundreds of people. Um, so that's kind of why the tribes and the settlers began to refer to the water as death's door out of, you know, fear and reverence mm. for the people who passed away. So right. that was all the way back Megan, in the 1600s. Yeah, Megan, I think that's a great death's door, man. That's awesome. That's yeah, awesome it's, it's very yeah. interesting. Very spooky. Yeah, pretty cool. Wow. Yeah. All right, next thing I'm going to talk about, you know, we already talked about haunted roads, haunted bridges, but have you ever thought that lighthouses mm. could be haunted? Ooh, I yeah. love haunted yeah. lighthouses. So believe it or not, in Door County, there's actually a handful of haunted lighthouses. So I chose three of those today and I'm going to talk about them. And each one gets a little bit more spooky as we go. So you'll have to tell me what you think. All right. All right. So the first one that I picked out is called the Sherwood Point Lighthouse. And this was built in 1883 at the Green Bay entrance to Sturgeon Bay. It's this, you know, beautiful red brick house. It's about one and a half stories high. And then it has this white square tower built on the back. So that's the lighthouse. So back in 1889, there was this keeper of the lighthouse and his name was William Cotchams. And he decides to marry this woman named Minnie Hesh. Love that name. Super cool. So <laughs> Minnie, she was actually, you know, pretty cool because she was named the assistant keeper of the lighthouse. And that wasn't really a job that women had back in the day. So that was, oh, wow. yeah, pretty cool that she got, you know, a very high end job. But unfortunately, in 1928, Minnie did suffer from a stroke and she died while she was getting out of bed in the upstairs bedroom. Mm. So a little sad, but William um, ended up staying at the lighthouse until he retired in 1933. So there's been a, a few spooky things that have happened at this lighthouse. So residents and visitors of the lighthouse have heard noises at night, including voices and what they think sounds like clinking of teacups, which <laughs> might make sense from the time period. Yeah. Exactly. And other, yeah, and other people have, you know, seen this presence on the staircase. That's how they described it. So someone, uh, a descendant of William Cotchams, his name is Robert Cotchams, he actually took a photograph of the lighthouse in 1984. And if you look at the photograph, it kind of shows like a human form in one of the windows. And hmm. I looked for this photo and I wasn't yeah. able to find it. So if anyone uh, is able Robert. to find it, let us know. Yeah, I'm going to keep yeah. looking for it. Because it would be very cool to see if I could find yeah. it. Yeah. Dairylandfrights at gmail.com. <laughs> yes, send it over. Thanks, John. A good call out for me. So maybe it's Minnie haunting the lighthouse. Who knows? But kind of seems like it's a friendly sort of ghost. Doesn't mean any harm. But this lighthouse is not open to the public. It is now used as a Coast Guard retreat of sorts. So hmm. it's still pretty cool to see. You just can't go into it. Oh, Megan, just really quickly, at the end of the podcast, I will talk about each individual thing since I've been on the tour. All uh, right, perfect. Can't wait to hear, John. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. Here is lighthouse number two. It is called the Chambers Island Lighthouse. So this one is located on Chambers Island, which is about seven miles northwest of Fish Creek. And this one is slightly older. It was built in 1868. So this one is 
really cool looking. It's made of tan bricks and it has this like circular stairway from the basement all the way to the lantern deck. Super cool. But the first haunting of the lighthouse actually occurred in the spring of 1976 when the caretaker of the lighthouse started hearing these, you know, loud noises that kind of sounded like footsteps coming down the tower's staircase. Mm. So the sound kind of continued through the living room and then he heard it in the kitchen. And then finally he heard this click, which sounded like the kitchen door closing by itself. Very Ooh, interesting. Love it. love it. So fast forward a few years, this is summer of 1979. The lighthouse was being renovated, but during this time, tools began disappearing and ending up in unlikely places which actually makes me think of summer wind we have another episode like that tools yep. when you know buildings are being renovated they just move disappear it's very interesting yes yes so this is a little spooky to me so some of the visitors who have stayed the night at the lighthouse have reported feeling like their beds were being grabbed and shaken oh yeah. i would be cool. That'd be creepy. A little, a little spooked out. I'd probably pack up my stuff and <laughs> go sleep in a tent outside. Yeah, there you go. So yeah. there's a running theory that the ghost might be Lewis S. Lewis S. Williams, who was the first keeper of the lighthouse back in the late 1800s. And you can actually visit this lighthouse by special arrangement. You just have to get there by a private boat mm -hmm. or an excursion boat. Yep. So pretty cool. Yeah, I want to stay there. That. <laughs> all right, Brooke, let us know how it goes. <laughs> oh, I will. All right, here's the very last haunted lighthouse I'm going to talk about. This one is the Potawatomi Lighthouse. So this one is located on Rock Island off the northern tip of Door County, and it's actually Wisconsin's oldest lighthouse, and it was built in 1836. So pretty cool that it's wow. in Door County, which would make yeah. sense. So this one is interesting. There are actually people who live in the lighthouse because they give tours. Really? So yeah, it's yeah. kind of like a live-in museum. And um, yeah, guides will live at the lighthouse from Memorial Day through Columbus Day each year. And they give daily tours. So that's something that you can check out if you want to. Hmm. But this one is probably like the most active as far as paranormal happenings. Visitors have heard voices they've seen like odd shapes flickering over graves nearby there's a graveyard mm -hmm. near there and yeah. they've also heard unusual noises at like a native american cemetery nearby so there's it seems like there's a lot of activity in and sure. around the lighthouse hmm. so this would creep me out the most people have actually seen ghosts of small children playing around the <laughs> graveyard <laughs> near nice. The lighthouse. So this was where Scandinavian settlers were buried. So might be those people. Interesting. interesting but... So strange noises are also heard in the lighthouse. Doors will open and close by themselves. So mm. Some people might think that it might be the original lighthouse keeper. who His name is David Corbin. His body is actually buried on the island. So maybe he's oh. tied to the building in some way. Yeah, sure. There's also a theory that William's wife, Emily, she was a teacher on the island and she taught a lot of the students at the island school. So some people think that maybe the children could be um, the, the school students. children or, yeah, her her students. But she also had nine children. So oh, oh wow. there could be a variety of, of children. Yeah. On the island, so. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So that one is a little bit 
scary for me, but still really cool. John, were you able to visit that one? It was the Potawatomi yes, Lighthouse. Oh, cool. All right. At the yes, end, we will talk about it. Yeah, yeah. All right. Perfect. So we're going to move on to one of my favorite stories from Door County. So this one is about the Shipwrecked Brew Pub and Restaurant. So this is a pub in Egg Harbor, and it has this rich history. It was built back in the 1800s, and it's actually famous for being haunted. So I didn't actually know like how it was haunted. So I did some research, and this is so interesting <laughs> to me. So people believe that the haunting is tied back to Al Capone. Oh, <laughs> yeah. So he was a yeah. Chicago gangster. So he allegedly used to hide out in Egg Harbor from time to time at the shipwreck restaurant, which is interesting. interesting. But it's not actually Al Capone who is haunting the restaurant. They say oh. that it's Al Capone's illegitimate son named Jason. Oh. And the That's story huh. goes that Jason was found hanging in the attic of the original shipwrecked because Ooh. he was scared that, you know, the police were going to come grill him about where mm. his father was. True. So I don't, I don't know if that's true or not, but that's kind of what the stories go. So wow. lots of people have claimed to see his ghost over the year, over the years, like one guy. Um, I don't think it's not just him. I think there's other ghosts as well, because one man yeah. reported seeing a child on the roof of the restaurant. And so he calls <laughs> the police. And of course. Yeah. So he's like, there's a kid on the roof and the police come out. And of course there's nobody on the roof. So that's interesting. So this is where things get weird and a little bit sad. So Shipwrecked actually caught fire in August 2017, and there was like oh. massive, massive damage. Oh and no! There's a theory that the fire started in one of the guest bedrooms upstairs. So the there's a restaurant on the bottom, and then guest rooms on the top. So it maybe it was Jason's room. Who knows? Mm. But the building mm. was like majorly damaged. So they ended up just yeah. um, taking the whole thing down and starting fresh. So yeah, it actually, yeah, it's like completely renovated nowadays. They got rid of the guest rooms. Uh, it's oh. uh, a, Yeah, it's a two-level restaurant now, but people have actually said that the paranormal occurrences have not stopped, even though no. the guest rooms and the original building are gone. So maybe that just means, you know, paranormal, you know, entities are tied to the land. Who knows? Yeah, no, I believe that. That's so... Yeah, I, I definitely recommend checking it out. It's a it's a great place to stop. Yeah, yeah, and it looks, looks really like uh, they've increased a little bit. Mm -hmm. Some of you notes say that too. That um, yeah, it, yeah. I haven't been able to find additional accounts, but I think mm. people just have like weird, unexplained stories and occurrences that happen there. So I've been there before. Great food. I did not feel anything paranormal, but. <laughs> no, there's still time. That's true. No, yeah. no children coming up to you, Megan, and being like, "Hello, <laughs> Megan." No children on the roof, thankfully. <laughs> that would I be a little you. concerning. Ooh. Well, no, if you thanks. do see a ghost there, make sure you buy them a round of beer. They've <laughs> got their own brewery yep. there. It's pretty cool. Right. <laughs> oh yeah. I'm sold. Don't, don't give ghostly children beer. That's not allowed. Oh. <laughs> Maybe it's Al Capone's family, though. You can do that. Come on. Yeah, that's true. I'm sure the All Capone right. children were boozing at a young age. <laughs> Probably, to be honest. You heard it here first. 
All right, perfect. I have one last story that I'm going to share with you all today. And John has actually been to this place. So John, I'd love to hear your insights after I tell it. So this is called the Alexander Noble House. And something interesting about this is that it allegedly has spooky haunted mirrors inside. And I'll tell yeah. that story. But mm. the Alexander Noble House is um, in Fish Creek. And it's one of the oldest remaining residences there. It was built in 1875 by Alexander Noble. And he was the, one of the town's founders, which is pretty cool. But you can actually visit the house yourself. Um, it's um, operated by the Gibraltar Historical Association. And um, many tours, tour visitors have, you know, had some spooky experiences. And I, some of them are actually really scary. So I'm going to talk about those. But people have seen, you know, apparitions in the house. They've seen floating orbs. And they've even seen faces through the windows. Ooh. Oh, I don't oh know God, about that's, that. like, that's my worst nightmare. <laughs> yeah. All right, I'm going to tell some of the like craziest, weirdest occurrences that have happened there. So one time this visitor came, uh, it was a, a young girl, and she took this selfie in one of the mirrors in Noble's bedrooms and found that, you know, in the resulting photo, there was a skeleton face in it. Oh, oh right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know how to explain that. But can you imagine, you know, looking through your photos and it's like, oh, my God, like, <laughs> scary. <laughs> yeah, but um, another thing is, like I said, people have seen faces in the upstairs and downstairs center windows at the house, and some people have claimed they've caught them on camera, haven't been able to find those, but would be interesting to see if, you know, I could find some of those, but... Um, the director of the Gibraltar Historical Association, her name is Lori Buskey. I think I'm saying that right. She believes that the spirits of the house actually like watch over tourists. So I, I don't think there's ever been anything, you know, like, you know, like super scary or, you know, violent or anything. But um, one day uh, her daughter was actually working at the noble house. Um, her name is Katie and she worked at the house for two summers and she had some like really weird things that happened to her. Like one night she felt a tug on the back of her skirt and she said that it kind of felt like a child was tugging on her skirt and trying to get her attention, oh, which is nice. interesting. And she's also heard a child crying upstairs and doors opening on their own, which is interesting. And then lastly, in the upstairs mirror at the house, Katie saw a man with a beard standing behind her when she looked in the mirror. Oh, oh God. Terrifying. Terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> so scary and then lastly while sharing information during a tour about noble's wife emily who died before the house was built katie said that she felt this cold hand patting on her back she said oh, as oh. if to console her <laughs> oh. so well, at least it's being a nice ghost it, so it's yeah, like, right? kind of scary but kind of comforting in mm -hmm. a weird way so so there's been a lot of activity in the house, but um, the the people who watch over the house, they say nothing's been like truly bad. And Katie, one of the tour guides, she jokes that it's just a family that never wants to move out. Can you uh, blame them? No. So those are my stories of Door County. I hope you all enjoyed them. John, I'd love to hear about your experience with the tours. I know there's um, different ghost tours that you can book and you can stop at different Correct. spots. And it sounds like you've been on them. I haven't yet. So I'd love to hear what yeah. you have to say about those. Yeah. To tell a very sad story today. <laughs> <laughs> you know. <how> it goes. <laughs> 
<laughs> it'll be really interesting i'm excited it's gonna be good uh, and i am very I'm, yeah, I'm very excited to hear a very sad story <laughs> Wait, do I need to get my tissues, ladies? Because... You know, maybe, maybe, just in case. Also, on our last podcast, yes, we talked about Zach. We did. Megan's big story, so. <laughs> yeah, we're still waiting for some updates on that whole situation, yes. but we'll keep you guys posted. <laughs> so, let's get right to it. today. Um, so, they knew that there were fires, and that wasn't exactly... Um, out of the ordinary but the um the townsfolk also knew that a fire was coming and like normal they kind of prepared to fight it so they would fill big barrels full of water and they would like ready the pumps that they would normally use to fight these sorts of small fires that would pop up around the town um and because of the life that they were used to with all the fire forest fires being fairly normal um due to the activity of lumberjacks and farmers and railway workers they weren't really immediately alarmed they were like ah it's just you know typical day in Peshtigo let's just get ready to fight this fire however on the evening of Sunday October 8th uh, the fire reached Peshtigo and the survivors described this like insane roaring sound that all of a sudden like came out of nowhere and all of a sudden everyone heard it um, and the flames just burst through the nearby forest like completely out of nowhere people weren't expecting this at all and it was just this like roaring inferno of flames um and it began consuming the town so quickly according to eyewitnesses they actually described it at the speed of a railway locomotive is what this like how this fire blew through town um so very quickly the men who were in charge of like these water pumps and water barrels realized that there was no hope in fighting the fire so everyone started just fleeing um the entire town just started running for their lives and um everything burned so people were saying like obviously houses everything made of wood burned but also like animals people's clothes people's hair like one person described seeing a young girl where her and where her hair like she had very long hair and it like caught fire and like her oh. entire head caught on fire that would have um, been crazy yeah and yeah. everything was just like adding fuel to the fire so like right. it just kept like building and building and building and essentially a firestorm was created which is i had never really i'd heard this uh term but i didn't really know what it meant but a firestorm essentially is a fire that's so hot that it creates its own wind system um so essentially hmm. like firestorms can actually burn as hot as 2000 degrees um Whoa. insane <laughs> yeah and they can also create what are called like convection columns which are essentially fire tornadoes um and this likely happened Jeez. in Peshtigo because some of the survivors claim that they saw the firestorm like throwing rail cars and houses like into the air like just stuff just like flying everywhere as if it was they kind of described it as like a hurricane yeah like a yeah yeah, like a tornado almost Mm -hmm. like a a hurricane of just fire yeah which is absolutely insane i can't even like fathom that Mm. no um but as most people and they kind of knew to do this because again they knew a little bit about how these fires went most people ran for the peshtigo river so there's actually the Peshtigo River runs right down the middle of town, which is what they would use to uh, move the lumber um, down. So that river ran through town. So they all tried to run for the river and like get to the other side um, because they didn't think that the fire would cross the river, but it did. It jumped the river pretty easily, ended up burning both sides of the town. 
So then people just planned on like staying in the water thinking that that would save them. (laughs) Um, So according to Reverend Peter Pernan, who he has like the most kind of um, like long, well-constructed account of what happened. He was a survivor Um, there. So he has he has like a lot of firsthand stories. But he said, as a quote, the flames darted over the river as fast as they did over land. The air was full of them, or rather the air itself was flame. Their heads were constantly in danger. Um, and he said that the um, only it was only by like throwing water over their faces and heads constantly and splashing water continually that they were able to keep the flames at bay. And then also some people had like taken stuff from their homes, like quilts and mattresses to try to like save them. So they were like grabbing the quilts um, wow. hiding underneath them, but they had to like Aww. completely like submerge wow. seconds mm-hmm. because otherwise they would like dry up and disintegrate. So they were like pretty much like bobbing in and out of the water just constantly. Um, and it's actually people, if people didn't die from like burning to the fire, a lot of people actually ended up drowning or dying of hypothermia because the, it was October. So it was pretty cold out. Mm-hmm. So the river water was actually only 40 degrees. Um, it's terrible. Yeah, and um, I think I have it in in my outline somewhere. But they ended up having to stay in the water for about six hours, so oh, it was a long, no. yeah, a long no period of way. time, yeah, to stay in that super cold water. So some people did not even make it, even if they made it to the river. So, um, I wanted to mention a couple personal stories. These are a little dark, but um, I feel like <laughs> sometimes it's hard to. Uh, like empathize really with people who lived so long ago because life was so different that it just mm-hmm. seems so right. like disconnected. So I wanted to mention like some firsthand accounts just to like give a little bit more context for like how people felt um, during that time. So the first one, this is actually from a sign that's in the cemetery near the Pestigo Fire Museum. So this is about the Kelly family. So this is like a direct quote. This is what the sign says. So it says, Terrence Kelly, his wife and four children lived in the upper sugar bush. When the fire came with the terrible wind and smoke, the family became separated. Voices could not be heard over the roar of the fire. Mr. Kelly had a child in his arms, as did Mrs. Kelly. The other two children clung to each other. In search for safety, each group lost track of the others. The next day, Mr. Kelly and a child were found dead nearly a mile from his farm. Mm. The mother and another child were safe. The other children, a boy and a girl who were both five were found sleeping in each other's arms near the farm, the house barn and all the outbuildings had burned to the ground. So apparently the, oh. these two kids survived, which is mm-hmm. kind of oh, crazy. No. Yeah. Um, another survivor, this is Anna Korstad Iverson. And I believe she's actually from like Norway or something like a Scandinavian mm. country. Sure. So she said, um, we sat on a raft covered with feather with a feather bed, my mother holding me and my father, spilling water over the three of us as fast as he could so our clothing would not catch fire but mother's clothing burned nearly off her back so yeah so she and her they actually did end up surviving she and her parents which is great but um but yeah it was obviously very traumatic um wesley duckett was another survivor so he said when balls of fire started coming down from the sky my mother and father took us to the spring and wrapped us in wet quilts again these wet quilts like seem to have saved a lot of people like uh, mm-hmm. uh which is great that people kind of knew what to do but sure. he also said uh, my mother and father were temporarily blind which we will see come up again this is a common occurrence as well mm. uh, i went to see mrs reinhardt our neighbor and i found her dead he recalled 
I liked her a lot and that really hurt me. Her shawl had not completely burned, so I took the corner that was left and kept it with me for many years. Aww. Very, Aww, yeah, very touching. Wow. Yeah. Um, and then this was really interesting too. So this is actually a letter written by Martha Newberry Kuhn to her sister-in-law, Mary. Um, this was written two days after the fire, so October 10th. And in her letter, George, she'll talk about George. That is Martha's husband. So the author's, the person who's writing it, George is her husband. And then Charlie is her brother. And then Grace is Charlie's wife. So her sister-in-law. So that's, those are the people she's talking about. Mm. And then she's writing to her other sister-in-law. So she said, dear, and I, I clipped out some parts of this. So this isn't um, 100% what it says, but there's like the most um, kind sure. of crazy parts, but she said, dear sister, I have bad news to tell. Charlie and his two little boys are gone. Oh, what a horrible oh. death. I know. There was a tornado Jeez. of fire swept over the farming district and the Peshtigo village. It came on us very suddenly. Charlie and his family started to flee. They got about a half mile from home when they, when they went into a little pool of water. Charlie had the two children and some things he was trying to save. He passed through the water, thinking to get farther away from the fire. Oh, Mary, it was truly a night of horror. It rained fire. The air was on fire. Some thought the last day had come. Mary, my father, four brothers, two sisters-in-law, and five of their children, two of Grace's, and three of Brother Walter's <laughs> passed away. Oh, like, no. all those people in her life. Like, insane. Oh, she said, no. uh, ah, dear Mary, we are almost crazy. No one can hardly, one can hardly keep one's senses together to write you anything. George went over to see if he could find their bodies. He found Charlie and the children. Charlie and Jesse were lying on their faces, and Frankie was sitting down by a stump with his hands up to his face. Poor, poor little ones. Grace counted 89 dead bodies within the space of a half a mile. <sighs> mm -hmm. um, oh, Mary, Grace has no clothes. I either. Our eyes were all burned, mm. but we are better now. George, Eddie, and I were saved by fleeing to the river. <laughs> oh, my so, goodness. Yeah, just crazy. Oh. Like, imagine that many people in your family, like, passing away. Like, it was, like, half of her family, at least. Like, yeah. four of her brothers. I Yeah, just absolutely insane. And, but, and um, just really quickly, remember, yeah. people didn't have cell phones, mm -hmm. <laughs> the internet, or next day air. So this would take, if you're lucky, maybe close to a month to, yeah, get. to get to someone. Yeah. So imagine if you hear... I don't know, rumors, there's a fire, and you're thinking, mm -hmm. like oh you my, don't know. Oh, well, I don't know if they're lying. And then you get this letter. Mm -hmm. How devastating yeah. would that be? <clears throat> oh, yeah, that's yeah exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And like, and I'll mention it a little later too, but like their communication systems were like very delayed and down, obviously, mm -hmm. too. So right. it probably took even longer than that. Um, yeah. It was very, it was just a very awful situation. So, um, like I mentioned, after six hours, the fire had died down. So the people who were in the water were six able to hours. come out. Yeah, six hours. God, that's a long time. And it was like the evening, too. So it was kind of like the middle of the night, I believe, when everything had died down. So um, the only people who ended up surviving were the people who made it to the river um, and who didn't you know, die of other causes mm -hmm. or to a marshy area that was located at the south of the town. Um, in other areas too something kind of interesting is some people actually survive by taking like quote-unquote shelter in fully plowed farm fields mm. because then the you know if they're out of the trees the fire yeah. couldn't really like pass pass by it which is mm -hmm. uh yeah really interesting but but yeah so altogether uh in the aftermath the fire consumed approximately 1.5 million acres wow. or 1875 square miles Oof. and ended 
um, an estimated of 1,200 to 2,400 lives. Wow. Um, Jeez. Yeah, absolutely insane. Um, yes. Including 800 just in the town of Peshtigo, but the fire also consumed an estimated 16 other small villages and communities kind of in the vicinity. So they think, um, I think there's a sign in Peshtigo that says like 1,700 is their best like guess, but it definitely could mm. be more. Sure. Um, it's hard. It's hard for them to tell. Uh, so the fire decimated every building in Peshtigo and beyond. It melted metal. Um, some said it turned sand into glass. Wow, wow. that'd be so really hot. hot. Yeah, that's yeah. really hot. Insanely hot. Yeah, um, and obviously, like animals and livestock and all of their food supply were completely wiped out. Mm. Um, and the exact number of lives. It's actually interesting. It's uh, it's unknown because the fire itself destroyed the town records and burnt. So like. <sighs> You know, they didn't have yeah. the records of everyone who was living there. So they kind of had to guess. And also it burnt people so badly that some bodies were never recovered. In fact, mm-hmm. I looked this up. So like a cremation oven, um, the no- normal temperature that it would reach would be 1800 to 2000 degrees. So it's definitely possible that some people were like completely yeah. incinerated and in, right. you know, the firestorm because the firestorm can also get up to 2000 degrees. So um, mm-hmm. sometimes I, <laughs> it's like so gruesome and like dark to think about but there were people who said that at times they didn't know if like something was a body other than the fact that like uh, there would be like a melted belt buckle or like a watch and that was like the only way they would even know if it had been like a human which is absolutely insane yeah it's insane yeah yes it is um and then they there were tons of like unidentified remains too so they actually took the remains of around 350 residents um and buried them in a mass grave at the Peshtigo fire cemetery so there if you go to Peshtigo you will see like there is a yeah a mass grave there um Jeez. with 350 people buried there um oh it was also mentioned that so many people were unidentified because because either they were burned so badly but if they weren't, um, there might have been no one left alive who would recognize them, which oh, is so sad to think about. Yeah. Like, it's worse. <laughs> uh-huh. I know. I'm like, it's just insane. Like, it's, it's crazy. I don't know. I might have I might have these details later, but I looked it up and it's actually more people died in this fire than in like Hurricane Katrina, for instance. And you think about wow. the fact Whoa. that it was, yeah, which I... Had like it took me reading that to really like understand like yeah. the insane level of devastation and the fact mm-hmm. that like you know New Orleans is a huge city so obviously mm-hmm. this is massively devastating but a much smaller percentage of the community died whereas with Peshtigo it was a small town to begin with and mm. like over half the people who live there passed away like it's Jeez. wow just insane to think about yeah. but but yeah um. Like I mentioned before, uh, because the communication systems were completely wiped out, it took like days to get the help that the town needed. So survivors in a lot of cases had to actually walk on foot to towns that were miles away to tell them what had happened and that they needed help. Um, So Marinette, Wisconsin, was actually one of the first towns to respond. So they sent they were not affected by the fire. So they sent um, clothing and food for the survivors. Um, So that was great. And then they kind of were spread from there. But the news of the fire was very heavily overshadowed by the Great Chicago Fire because, like I said, it was the same day. So, mm-hmm. like, they people didn't even know about the Peshtigo Fire for days because they learned about Chicago pretty much right as it was happening because mm-hmm. there were so many people there. Word travels a lot faster. 
So like days later, finally, when it was understood that many more people had died in Peshtigo, some of the train cars that were actually on their way to help Chicago were rerouted to Peshtigo. Oh, that's good. Yeah, so that was good, but it was like days late. So yeah, you know, it was kind of like, oh, thanks, guys. Like, yeah, thanks enough. Yeah. Uh-huh. Like literally Jeez. what, like, I don't know, like six, seven times the number of people died in Peshtigo. It's <sighs> it's crazy. Um, So... Yeah, I, like I said, very few people have actually heard of this fire at all. Um, even as someone who was born and raised in Wisconsin, like I had heard mm -hmm. the name the Peshtigo right. fire, like I knew it was a thing, but I had no idea like what the cost was or anything like that until my dad told me. He was like, "Did you know that the deadliest fire in U.S. history mm -hmm. happened in Wisconsin?" And I was like, "That can't be true." But yeah, sure I, enough, I, yeah, I have to be honest. I knew about the fire too, but since the Chicago, because they're a bunch of fibs. <laughs> uh, they uh, they have to get top billing, even mm -hmm. though you know what you're talking about. I've kind of read about, it and I'm like, "Are you kidding me?" Mm -hmm. I mean, it's wiped out an entire town. Yeah, you know, yeah, of... multiple towns really, and it, yeah, I, it's just it's kind of sad because it feels like almost like the property loss is more important to people mm. than the actual lives, which is right. kind of that's insane yeah. to me. Mm hmm. Yeah, like Ugh. obviously the Chicago fire was still really bad. It displaced, you know, like a hundred thousand people. But Chicago. but most people still survived at least. So mm -hmm. yes, yeah. But yeah, so something else I wanted to mention because I learned about this and I was like, what the actual hell? Honestly, <laughs> so <laughs> we talked about yeah, WTF. I literally have it in my outline as WTF is going on. Uh, we just talked about the Peshtigo fire. We mentioned the Great Chicago fire. But what if I told you there were even more fires occurring no. in the Midwest on that day? Yeah, same day. What October is up 8th, with October 8th? What is I know. This is a I literally bummer podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I know, but it's so crazy. I yeah. literally I was looking up like what astrological things are happening on this day. I don't know enough about astrology to really well, give any you. insight into that. But I was like, I was just like, what could possibly be happening? Mm, because mm -hmm. there were two other fires in michigan oh. actually on that same day so what? uh there was the port here on fire which started mm. october 8th in michigan um which was one of a series of fires known as the great michigan fire and burned multiple cities including white rock and port huron and much of the countryside that's in like the thumb region of michigan um in okay. total another like 1.2 million oh. acres burned so a Please. huge fire yeah in that one i believe uh only like 50 people died so still like that's still wow. a lot of people. Yeah. Um, but then on the same day in Michigan, another fire burned the cities of Holland and Manistee, Michigan. Megan and I were actually just there like two days ago. Yes, we were. <laughs> um, but in total, in those fires, about 250 people died. Wow. Um, and uh, yeah, in these fires in Michigan. So that means like in absolute total, at least 2000 people died to various forest fires in the Midwest. Just yeah. in this like two day span of time. Um, but it was cl likely closer to 3,000, possibly even Ooh, more. Wow. Um, so it's just crazy. Like, it's, it's yeah. just crazy to me how that all happened on the same day. But so I, I wanted to do a lot of digging into yeah. how yeah. this even happened because it was just so right. bizarre to me. That's why yeah. that's where the weather.gov <laughs> website comes in. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. So they, they really they have a lot of good information about this. So. Uh, the actual cause of many of these fires uh, is not really known. So people claim everything from like meteor strikes <laughs> to lightning storms to right. in the great Chicago fires case, people say a cow kicked over a lantern, which is not 
necessarily true. Most people true. do not actually think this is true. It's just no. like the pop culture, mm-hmm. accepted, right. whatever. Um, but realistically, like when weather conditions are the way that they were, like anything could have caused it. So um, what we do know is that the weather conditions across the region during the summer and fall of 1871 were incredibly dry. So circumstances were very conducive to large and fast spreading fires. And again, people just weren't used to that. So they didn't really take precautions. Um, in fact, records show that there hadn't been a like significant rainstorm in the area um, really in all the Midwest since like mid July of 1871. Mm, so again, dry. this was October. So yeah, it was months of like barely any rain and there was no rainfall at all in Peshtigo for 11 weeks, which e. is again, very unusual for the time. Um, so things were very, very dry. Also, um, logging and clearing of land for agriculture and local industry contributed to the fast spread of the fire because people, they just like discarded the timber kind of without caution. Um, so there was just like, you know, dead trees everywhere that they had, um, you know, been logging and everything that they weren't um, discarding of properly. Um, and then there was also a general ignorance and indifference toward the population of like the Peshtigo area specifically what? and Michigan, um, which contributed to a lack of services. But I mean, either way, I think, yeah. you know, even with proper emergency services, like at the point that the fire had gotten to, I don't think there was any stopping it. But sure. um, but in addition, and this, I think, is like the key to why it was like this day in particular. So there was a strong autumn storm system occurring in the area on October 8th specifically due to like a colliding hot and cold front from the north and south. And there was like a 40 degree difference in temperature variation. So this produced um, very strong southwesterly, uh, quote unquote, hurricane Ah. force winds across the central plains. They said that there were like 100 mile an hour winds, like pretty much across this entire area, which is crazy. Yeah, so the winds combined with the dryness really led to any small fires, which were fairly normal, being very quickly and easily turned into larger fires and spreading very rapidly. So normally, like, there would be small fires popping up fairly frequently, but this day specifically, it was like, no, if there's a small fire, it's going to become a Mm -hmm. gigantic fire. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, so October 8th was specifically very windy. Um, it's still strange that it all happened on the exact same day. Like it's right. strange no matter what, but yeah. um, but luckily the fires of these days across the Midwest uh, were a huge wake up call that led to a ton of changes in how oh. we prevent forest fires to this day. So like properly yeah. discarding of wood that's you know not going to be used. They're not mm-hmm. burning stumps and branches right. in the woods right. anymore. Yeah. Um, and just like taking extra precautions when it's a specifically dry year, things like that, and having yeah. more. Obviously, now we have communication systems, so people know when things are coming as well. Yeah. Um. So, like, likely nothing like this will ever happen again. Um, Don't yeah, tell California that. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Well, it was crazy to me too that with all the California fires, that still this one in Wisconsin was the most deadly. Like. Yeah. Uh, just kind of so- insane, but. So what's really interesting about all of this is it was really hard to get a grasp on everything, right? Because this was so long ago, but so devastating and and destroyed so much and everything. And the closest we can is like to California. So my father-in-law lived in California when some of the biggest fires were happening. Mm -hmm. (laughs) This is like how silly we are nowadays. So it it went to L.A., and of course, people in LA can't have smoke 
Mm-hmm. So everyone just stayed inside and they closed everything down and everybody was like, huh, look at that big fire and it's ruining our lives. Somebody should do something about it. And, right. And it kept, keeps happening again. And you can, if you want a, a, just a brief glimpse into what it, this might kind of be like, go on YouTube and, and, and Google um, fires and like people driving through them. Oh my gosh. Those yeah, are crazy. Yeah. Yeah, just, Absolutely just crazy. imagine you're a person and you have yeah, with two no little kids and uh-huh. your grandpa and grandma and whatever, right? And you're trying to get through that. So mm-hmm. again, I highly recommend, you know, do that and give a really good sense of what Brooke is talking about here. And you'd yeah. be like, no, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Let, right. Let's give money to the fire department so they can uh-huh. fight these things, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah, exactly. Oh, my it's, goodness. It's just absolutely insane. Another crazy thing, and I didn't write, write this in my outline, so I don't have like specifics, but I read it briefly somewhere. Um, I read that in World War II, they actually did a bunch of research into the Peshtigo fire and trying to understand mm. the exact conditions and how it happened. Not to like prevent it, which I mean, they did separately, but because they were trying to like use it as like a form of warfare like these crazy fires which was very again dark to me because imagine like i mean i know it's world war ii is different times but like imagine purposefully inflicting that kind of turmoil and pain on like another population of people like that's that'd be absolutely insane to me yeah Yeah, i don't know if they ever did it but yes so being a big history guys i am i can add just one really quick so they the the soldiers would have flamethrowers and what they would do is they would go up to the bunkers of these german or japanese and they would just light it up Mm -hmm. and here's the two things that happen one it sucks all the oxygen out of the room Mm -hmm. and you can't breathe Oh, by the way, you're on fire too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you run out, and this special type of what they developed kind of like a, a napalm, which would cling to your skin so you couldn't wash it off. And if you did try to wash it off, it would get worse. Yeah. Ugh, and then they God. would also do it in tanks where someone mm-hmm. would jump on top of a tank, light it up, suck all the oxygen out of there. The guys would run out. <laughs> they yeah. can't breathe. They're on fire. Then they would shoot them. So, you yeah. Know, <laughs> that's crazy human society for taking something so tragic and making it worse (laughs) yeah right literally that's that's what we're best at though right yeah Uh, we're good at that (laughs) just insane Uh, oh yeah but yeah so so very bad (laughs) but we love hauntings yeah so i did you know i couldn't not put this in there i wanted to focus mostly on like the story and the you know all the personal stories but there is some interesting um paranormal yeah uh, intrigue about this whole situation so um today uh this is according to wisconsin frights but I, i see this pop up a lot um, but visitors of Peshtigo report hearing like ghostly voices and seeing mm. apparitions cool. kind of all around the town, but especially Oof. in the museum. And they smell smoke while at the museum. Oh. And one person even reported having seen the museum engulfed in phantom flames. Oh, wow. And it's actually interesting because um, I was going to mention this a little later, but the uh, museum itself is actually in the exact spot where. Um, a church was that burned down during the fire and they like mm. rebuilt it and then it like burned down again. I'll mention this later because I want to get the details right. But uh sure. but yeah, so the museum itself, it would kind of 
makes sense the phantom flames thing because it was you know right where a uh, building had previously burned two times it turns out mm-hmm. um so yeah it's definitely i couldn't find like super specific stories but it seems like kind of just normal occurrences that people have in the city of peshtigo and, and it kind of makes sense anything about how uh, how awful it was um but this was this was a little out there. Uh, according to Wisconsinology, witnesses to the fire from back in the 1800s um, from Outagamie, Brown, and Manitowoc reportedly witnessed a demon boy riding a oh. black stag with massive horns spreading fire as he rode the countryside. That wow. is the coolest thing ever. I want to see that. <laughs> the Wisconsin <laughs> demon boy. Can you imagine? Riding a black stag. That yeah. is so metal. I'm just gonna uh, somebody somebody like, make a picture of this. Send it to like Gary at gmail.com. I will pay you. <laughs> right? It, yeah, it sounds it's pretty crazy. Sounds like That's a metal, so metal album cover for mm, sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and then this one was really weird to me. So um this actually came from Father Pernan, who provided like a ton mm. of eyewitness accounts um, from the fire itself. So he said survivors were apparently reporting seeing a black object similar to a balloon in the sky on the day of the fire, rapidly revolving in the air and streaming rivulets of fire in all directions. Wow. And it was like moving what? toward a house. Yeah. Which it seemed to, according to him, it seemed to single this one out, one house out for destruction. Okay. And then the balloon like burst, according to Father Pernan, mm. which is kind of insane. But at the same time, I'm like, well, what they're probably seeing was one of those like fire right. tornadoes. Correct. Yeah. And like, you know, yeah. they were maybe like kind of, I don't know, maybe the top of the, mm-hmm. the tornado looked like some kind of black object because sure. that's what it kind of sounds like to me. But just yeah. like the. <laughs> Yeah, the the description of it, I was like, "What? Like that's insane!" Mm, but wow. Um, but yeah, I'm sure, like in the chaos of everything, people were just kind of seeing seeing crazy things. I'm sure. sure. So so yeah, so there's um, just just a couple paranormal, intriguing things about the story. But um, wanted to talk a little bit about Peshtigo today because it has um, well the the lumber industry was never able to make a comeback, which of makes course. sense <laughs> yeah. because there were not really any. Yeah trees left um and as we know actually even the white pines in general are not as prominent mm-hmm. in wisconsin anymore because they were right. so like over over chopped over felled back in the mm-hmm. day but right um but Peshigo did rebuild and is now known um by some as the city rebuilt from ash which is cool oh, yeah. um the current population is about 3,400 people as of the 2020 census and it's about uh three square miles is the area okay. of the city hmm. so so what's it's cool, they're, yeah, they're back and they're they're doing their thing. Um, and then there is also the Peshtigo Fire Museum. So I really want to go to this. It, it looks pretty cool. It's not a huge museum by any means, but it's sure. um, it has a lot of like artifacts and, again, firsthand accounts. And it's right next to the cemetery, too, where they uh, buried those 350 people in a mass <sighs> grave. Hmm. Um, so the museum is located actually on the site where the St. Mary's Catholic Church stood before the fire. And then... <laughs> Oddly, after the fire, a new church was built across the river for the people of <laughs> Peshtigo. Hmm. Um, and then they, after that, built a second Catholic church on the St. Mary's site. Huh. But that church actually burned down again in 1927 <laughs> and course. was rebuilt somewhere else. So oh, the new yeah. church that was across the river moved back to the St. Mary's site. <laughs> and... 
What and the heck? that structure was converted to the museum in 1963. Oh boy. Okay. So a little convoluted, but yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> but kind of interesting. Yeah. So so yeah. So that uh, that museum is right where you know one one of the buildings that burned was was located. Hmm. Um, another thing is the Peshtigo Fire Museum is actually on the National Register of Historic Places, hmm. which is cool. Yeah. Um, they host storytelling sessions, exhibits of artifacts from the fire, displays of lifestyle at the time in 1871, um, and the Peshtigo Fire Cemetery, where the mass grave is, is right next to the museum. And there's actually a memorial marker there uh, that was constructed by the town in 1951. And it was actually the first official state historical marker in the state of Wisconsin, oh. Um, oh. which is kind of cool. That's yeah. Cool. Nice. Yeah. Um, and then one of the more interesting things that they have at the museum is actually an unblemished church tabernacle, which Father Peter Pernan saved by submerging it in the Peshtigo River oh, as he was cool. fleeing. Yeah, yeah, so it's like completely like, you know, in good condition still. So that's kind of interesting. Mm. Um, and the museum also includes displays of several letters with first person accounts of the fire and the cleanup. Um, and one of in one of the letters, a survivor describes burying nine hundred to a thousand people. Oh, crazy! So sad. Can't even imagine being like the people no. in charge of that cleanup. But um, if you would like to visit the museum, it is um, apparently it's open every day from Memorial Day until October eighth each year. Fittingly, so uh, October eighth is the last day that it's open each year. But um, so it's not open yet, but it will open in may i guess and then it'll be open every day for a couple months um so yeah very interesting very cool very sad it's very sad yeah learn about but it's yeah well this is a bummer episode Uh, (laughs) but you know hopefully hopefully we learned something and again we will likely never see um anything as deadly well you know a forest fire as deadly as this it was actually the top five in the top five of most deadly national disaster um natural disasters in the history crazy yeah i think hurricanes would see a ghostly phantom of a woman walking around the grounds but at the time that they started saying this robert did not believe them However, one night in the mid-1930s, while he and his wife were eating dessert in the kitchen, they heard uh, the door to the basement opening and kind of, like, shaking. (laughs) (laughs) Very spooky. That's what they heard. Yeah, that's what they heard. That's for sure what they heard. (laughs) Um, So Robert, wanting to protect his family because he has his three kids there, too, remember, He grabbed a gun and he headed to the door where he, according to legend, saw someone and took two shots and then the person disappeared. So he shot at a ghost. Mm. And interestingly, these bullet holes were supposedly found later on after the Lamonts moved out. So they thought that this was like a a solid story. Um, I did actually find two photos of the supposed bullet holes taken by a member of the Wausau Paranormal Research Society in 1987. Um, but I couldn't find any other photos of these alleged bullet holes. And mm. even the pictures on the mm. Wausau Paranormal Research Society website were like, like it, it was like, yeah, maybe that could be bullet holes, but it yeah. also could have been someone like stabbing the door with a screwdriver. Like this is much later. So I think the wood was very, um, not very intact anymore. So I don't know. It's like, it could right. be bullet holes, but also yeah. I don't know if we can really clarify that, but 
Um, after this incident, again, according to the legend, the Lamont supposedly fled the house pretty much immediately and they never returned. However, I want to say I could not find anything regarding, first of all, the when this happened. So most sources say the mid-1930s. There's nothing even remotely like exact. Um, like there is no like specific date or even year that mm. can be attributed to this incident happening. Yeah. And I'm questioning, and I think Megan might talk about this guy, but Carl is actually the brother of someone who owned the mansion a little later on. Um, I think it's Ginger Hinshaw. So her brother, Carl, actually claimed that he, while he was visiting, smelled gunpowder and went downstairs and actually saw like a ghost apparition of Mr. Lamont actually shooting at nothing. Yeah, so he... So he said that this happened and then he saw the bullet holes. So that's what he assumed had transpired. Um, But it, I don't know if like, that's where the original story came from and no one ever really, cause I I couldn't find anything about um, Robert Lamont ever having like publicly said that he had seen a ghost, um, any information that they had for sure fled the building. Um, And even, I even looked into like the three kids to see if they had ever made any statement about the mansion being haunted, but I couldn't find anything from any of the three of them either. So it's really interesting. It seemed like this whole story about the Lamont's family didn't really, it wasn't really public knowledge until after Carl had like talked about it, which I just thought was kind of interesting. So Um, I I have a quick theory. (laughs) This is the way my mind works. You know how people in the 1900s were all pale and stuff like that and wear these creepy <laughs> long night gowns and everything like that? Yeah. Imagine if it was like Cousin Billy. <laughs> oh, no. Right? Upstairs, and he's all pale and everything. He didn't tell them they were coming or they didn't know he was there because it's a huge mansion. And Lamont just shot him. <laughs> right? And then, he, and then he covered it up by saying, oh, it was a ghost. <laughs> right? Since there's My no bad. what you're saying. Yeah. There's no evidence. There's no, like, there's not really anything you can sit, point to, like, oh, someone died be- during construction. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Well, that's the thing, too, is, yeah, it's like, why, <laughs> why was this place even haunted? Because there wasn't. Exactly. It wasn't built on any kind of like, you know, Native American burial grounds or anything like they sometimes yeah. say. There was no one who died there. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I later on, again, I think Megan might talk about this too. So I don't want to talk too much about it. But I think um the claim was that Jeremy Carver, I think it's Jeremy, um, like an old um explorer was actually haunting the building because he hmm had apparently had claim to the land like there was a uh, deed saying that he should have owned this sure, land sure. and that that existed somewhere in Summerwind and some kind of black box and he haunted the mansion because oh. he like was mad that he didn't have oh. access to this land or whatever but um but yeah even that um yeah. well we can again we can talk about it later but supposedly Jeremy Carver actually never explored that far north in wisconsin and also he wasn't mm. even buried in the united states at all so why would his ghost be there <laughs> but, yeah, um, a, little, a little suspicious yeah a little a odd little yeah um one other thing i thought this was funny so that blog that i was talking about this is a yeah. quote from that person who did tons of research on the mansion over time and they specifically said in the blog I'm having a great difficulty finding anything related to the mansion during the period from 1916 to 1930 or so. 
I would like to find a source which mentions the quote unquote kitchen shooting as I can't understand where this information has originated from. Right. And I was like, yeah, same. I also cannot find yeah. anything. So kind of interesting. Um, yeah. But moving on, the mansion apparently laid vacant for a long time after the Lamonts supposedly fled the property. So the Lamonts, um, according to most sources, say they owned the property until 1948 when Robert Lamont actually passed away. Um, and that they hadn't entered it again for pretty much like two decades. From, oh, gosh. Um, wow. Yeah, so like from the, I don't know, 1930 to 1950-ish, it pretty much no one was there. Um, but something that I thought was interesting was that, uh, so that's like the kind of story, again, that you see in everything, like haunted Wisconsin books, haunted mm -hmm. this, haunted that. But when I read an article from the Milwaukee Journal in 1985, again, this was from that blog, um, and this was a published news article, they had actually interviewed this woman named Caroline Ashby, who was from the Lando Lakes area, and she said that her family actually owned the mansion just before World War II, so the early 40s, and that she stayed there as a kid, and at the time, no one actually considered the mansion haunted. Um, and at that time, the mansion was already in disrepair and infested with bats, according uh, to her. No. So it's this sad. Is, yeah, it's, yeah, it's sad that it kind of like went, um, I don't know, kind of became so dilapidated so quickly. But also interesting that like, I, apparently you know most people think that the lamonts owned it until 1948 but apparently there was a whole other family living there for a couple of years that no one even really knew about or no one talks about <laughs> um another person in the same article named jerry e sparks he said that he actually lived there with his dad who was the caretaker for the mansion in the 1930s and they lived in the kind of the side house for the servants and caretakers and he also said that he didn't remember the mansion being haunted or anyone talking about the mansion being haunted either. Another res resident, Gene Newth, so this is more recent as well, he said that people started saying the mansion was haunted only after it was abandoned and no one said that while it was occupied. So mm -hmm. one thing I'll say, <laughs> I just wanted to throw this in there, but this place had so many freaking owners. <laughs> like People would right. apparently put a down payment down and then they would just ditch it. And even as late as 1985, people like didn't know who actually owned it and they were like hey we want to burn this place down but like who even owns this property yeah, they had to like, like track down the people so it was really interesting um mm. just how much this place was kind of passed around so i think that kind of like you know lends itself to the haunted thing too is oh, like yeah. people didn't want to keep it they didn't want to stay there um but eventually in 1948 Summerwind was purchased and kept by uh, lillian Kiefer and her husband so they had the mansion um kind of in there or they owned it for a long time they never lived there on a permanent basis which a lot of people kind of say was more evidence to it being haunted but um knowing that in the early 1940s it was already infested with bats i'm kind of like i understand why oh. they wouldn't want to live there yeah. yeah so um some reports say that miss Kiefer said she never felt safe at the property so she left the mansion and left all of her belongings there telling neighbors that they could take whatever they wanted but that she wouldn't be held responsible if something bad happened to them. <laughs> kind Ooh. of interesting. Mm -hmm. nice. Yeah. And then that same article from earlier also did mention one neighbor who did kind of have a paranormal experience. So when she was visiting Mrs. Kiefer right after they had purchased the mansion, um, she said she saw a big army overcoat laying on a bed 
And then later, like an hour later, she passed by the same room and it was just her and Mrs. Kiefer and Mrs. Kiefer hadn't been in there that the coat had actually disappeared and it freaked her out enough that she never went back. So she did have kind of a weird experience there. Yeah. Um, so anyway, after Mr. Kiefer died, Mrs. Kiefer actually divided the land up and sold everything. So remember, it was 80 acres of land. So wow. they sold a bunch of different lots. And the land, I guess, that had Summerwind on it kept being diverted back to Mrs. Kiefer because people couldn't keep up with the payments. So that's kind of why I got another reason why it got tossed around a lot. But it eventually did get purchased, though, by the Hinshaw family. And now I will pass it off to Megan, who's going to talk about that. All right. Thank Thanks, Brooke. Yeah. 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 That was really super interesting. And I'm still going with my cousin Billy story that killed him. Yeah. They left. <laughs> I think that's, yeah, I think that's reasonable. Okay. All right. <laughs> All right. Man. All right. To hear your part now. Sounds good. All right. In the, uh, in 1969, the Hinshaw family actually purchased Summerwind. So they're the next family that owned it. And they only stayed there for six months, which is, an extremely short period of time, but I do understand why they ended up leaving because they experienced some of the craziest, most intense paranormal activity that has ever really been reported in the mansion. And I'm going to talk about that today. Nice. So in this family, there were eight people. There was Arnold, the father, Ginger, the mother, and then they had six children. So you would think this is like the perfect place to raise nope. a nice big family. Ah. No. Uh, I'll go. I'll go over that. It it was no. a complete nightmare for them. It's you know, even when they moved in, like immediately there were red flags. Like when Ginger first saw the mansion, the first thing that she said when she saw it was, "I feel in love with this house in the most awful way." Isn't that such like an interesting oh, thing to say? Yeah. That is an interesting thing to say. Yeah, even she had like weird vibes about it <laughs> before she even really moved in and. Even after the family moved in, they started experiencing these really crazy, unexplained paranormal paranormal happenings. So all the members of the family started seeing these vague shapes. They saw shadows. They saw full body apparitions. And the most spooky of those apparitions was this one woman who would float back and forth between the French doors by their dining room. Another weird thing that happened is they would report that they would smell perfume in the air. Oh, oh yeah, boy. just uh, out of nowhere. Maybe it was the perfume of that woman who was floating yeah. back and forth on the French yeah, door. That, yeah. does happen. Maybe. that does happen. That is reported. Yeah. And another interesting thing I read is that they would hear these mumbled voices going on, but when they would walk in the room to see what was happening, the voices would just stop. It's like. Mm. Very interesting. Yeah. Uh, another thing they reported is that the lights would go on and off by themselves. So they must have had electricity at that time. So it'd be interesting to research when the house did get electricity. But another yeah. super interesting thing that I learned is that some of the rooms in the house would feel freezing, even in the summer. And uh -huh. for people who are familiar with Wisconsin, Wisconsin summers do get pretty hot. Yes. So having... You very know, humid. ice cold rooms is very odd. Very yeah. Odd. <laughs> so, of course, the family, you know, they wanted this to be their dream house. And they thought, you know, maybe we're just imagining things. But more things started to happen, like appliances would break down. Um, and then they'd call a repair person. But then it would magically repair itself before the service person came. Oh, nice. Uh, 
Yeah, windows and doors were opening and closing by themselves. And one time, this one window, it kept opening and closing and it was driving Arnold, the father, completely nuts. So he took this heavy nail and he nailed it into the window and shut it because he's like, you know, we're done with this. So he nailed it shut and it finally stayed closed. But (laughs) there's just that one window that would, would open by itself and it was driving him nuts. So the Hinshaws, they were super determined to make this historical house work for them, despite all these strange things occurring. And I mean, this was their dream house. They wanted to make it work and raise their family in it. it. But yeah, but what they really struggled with was they tried to hire workers to come in and fix up the place, but nobody would stay and work on the house. People would just straight refuse to work on it which is interesting. Um, Like renovators would just leave halfway through the projects. And some of them claimed, we just won't work on this house. There's too many bizarre things going on. And some of them even went so far as to fake being sick so that they wouldn't have to show up to work. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) they were, they were desperate not to work on the house. So finally the Hinshaws were like, you know, screw it. We're just going to do this housework ourselves. Yeah have to hire anybody well, that's a good idea <laughs> yeah but this is one of the craziest stories that i was able to find from summer wind one day arnold was painting this closet in one of the bedrooms and in the closet there was this large shoe drawer that was installed in the back of the closet mm. and arnold decided i'm going to pull it out so that i can paint behind it oh, but God. when he pulled it out he saw that there was this dark space behind the drawer. So mm. he was like, oh, you know, what was this? You know, didn't yeah, of course, see it before. Right? he had to go investigate it. So he has his wife, Ginger, bring him a flashlight and he takes a look. And the second he looks in there, he jumps and he's completely disgusted because he sees something furry in there. And he thought maybe an animal had gotten in and died. Um, but he couldn't quite see what it was. He he was just mm. too big to squeeze into the, the space. Yeah, no kidding. So mm-hmm. what any dad would do, he recruits his daughter, <laughs> Mary, oh, no. <laughs> to go Megan, in. He's like, you know, out. <laughs> get the daughter to do it. You know, who honey, knows what it here. is. Yeah, here, honey. <laughs> so they tell the daughter, all right, come back, come here and we'll take a look at what's inside the closet. So Mary, the daughter, she grabs the flashlight and she crawls inside this little dark space. But moments later, she lets out this big scream and she found what the legend says appeared to be a human corpse. What Mary pulled out of the closet was what she says appeared to be a human skull with black hair still on it. Oh, very suspicious. Yeah. Yeah. One thing I wanted to ask you two about is the Hinshaw family never called the police about this Mm. supposed skull that they found, which is a little bit suspicious. So why they never called the authorities? Not sure why Um, was the story concocted to fit, you know, those scary stories of summer wind or was this a real body that was the result of a crime that took place? Yeah, that's interesting, too, that, like, I mean, the the mansion was pretty much not used or it was pretty much vacant for, like, decades before they moved there. So 
it's like if it was behind a wall wouldn't it have happened during like the construction which i don't know it's just yeah the timing of it is a little odd because i feel like if a skull has hair still connected to it that implies that it's kind of more recent because yeah. you don't otherwise it would have all deteriorated so i don't know i don't know if i buy it so one thing um i don't know if you hear any news stories about this but some people will try to break into homes or they'll do like a santa claus and they'll try to go through the chimney and get stuck <laughs> uh, I, don't know, I don't know if that's i have chimney, heard about that but some people will try to go through the walls to get in because they don't want to be seen because they're robbing the place. Mm-hmm. So that's true. What's weird though, you're exactly right, uh, Megan. Why wouldn't they call the police? Because I'd be like, hey, I don't want you guys, someone buys this house and then they find the body or whatever we hide it. Mm-hmm. And then people think we did it. No, yeah, that's, I, yeah, that's one thing that occurred to me. If if you find this corpse in the house, it's like, hmm, all these haunted happenings have been happening. Maybe we should put yeah. this corpse to rest and bury right. it yeah. in the ground. Maybe that would have fixed things. So hey, just side note, when was this? This was the 80s or 60s? This was the 60s. Okay. Or, so oh no, the, they it didn't was have the 70s, DNA. pardon me. Oh, 70s. Yeah. So they still didn't have any DNA evidence that they could take this thing and you know what I'm saying? Like in modern yeah. day where you could do a DNA and then be like, oh, hey, it's, you know, whoever or, you know, we found this person. Yeah, but it's still, y- y- why wouldn't you call the police? That makes no sense. Yeah, I that will, is odd. I'll also talk about this later. They go back and they check to see if it's still there. And I'll yeah. tell you what happens later on. But it's, it's just interesting that they just... They saw the corpse and they just put it right back yeah. in. They're like, you know, just, out of sight, out of mind. Hey, yeah. Hey, honey, just put that right back in there. <laughs> Good. Yeah. Don't thanks. worry about it. <laughs> yeah, we're about it. Good night, hon. Sweet dreams. <laughs> Actually, John, this is where things start to get a lot crazier because after they found this supposed skull in the closet, things just took a turn for the worst. Quite frankly, Arnold, the father, he just completely lost his shit. He started staying up late at night and he was playing this Hammond organ that the couple had purchased before um, moving into the house. And now, if you take a step back, playing the organ and the piano was something that he really loved doing. He used to play it, you know, for fun. Yes. (laughs) Love Love it. But this time, just like that music recording, his music was completely frenzied and he'd play it really loud throughout the night. So mind you, he's staying up all night, playing the organ, not letting anybody sleep. And, you know, this is disturbing Ginger, his wife. She's begging him to stop. Please come to come to bed. But the interesting thing is Arnold told Ginger, if I stop playing something bad is going to happen. The demons in my head are telling me to keep playing. That's why I have to keep playing. And mm. oh, man. she's completely frightened that he's just going off the rails. You know, sometimes mm. Ginger would get all of the children together in a single room and they all sleep together because they're completely afraid of their deranged father staying up all night, yeah. playing the organ long into the night. Yeah. It's crazy. That's so, crazy. Yeah. Yeah, Arnold, he just, he suffered a complete mental breakdown. He's getting angry. He's withdrawn. He's emotionless. He stops showing up to his job. So Mm. he eventually loses his job. He's not paying the bills. 
he's sleeping all day. He's staying up playing the organ all night. It, it just was completely out of control. Wow. And there was this one interesting story that I found, you know, he's completely off the rails. And one day he was under the impression that one of his daughters had hid, hidden his hammer when they didn't. And so yeah. what he did in his mind, he's like, okay, how we're going to fix this. He went out and he found the daughter's pet raccoon oh. and he killed it oh as a punishment. God. And it's so mean. Yeah. What I found is he did it to quote, quote, prove a point. That's oh what he God. said. So <laughs> really sad. Yeah. So yeah. Where's that? Yeah. You can see why ginger, she's like completely beside herself. You know, some attempt or some accounts even say that she even contemplated committing suicide in the oh. summer wind mansion. So oh. The stress was just too much for her. Yeah. And so she ended up sending Arnold away for treatment, which is probably the best thing for him. The and best thing, yeah. Yeah. Ginger and the children, they ended up moving to Granton, Wisconsin with Ginger's parents. So mm, they Ginger and Arnold did end up getting a divorce and Ginger remarried to a man named George, who will come into the story later. Okay. Interesting. So... Ginger, she's completely terrified of this house. They don't live there anymore. But a few years later, Ginger's father, his name is Raymond Von Bobber. I believe that's how you say his name. <laughs> I love yes. that name. Von Bobber, yes. Von Bobber. <laughs> so Ginger's father, he announces his plans. I'm going to turn Summerwind into a bed and breakfast. I'm going to breathe Great. new life into it. Like, that makes sense. It's completely haunted. Idea. Let's make it into attraction, right? Yeah. So yeah, okay. He thought that this mansion would attract guests to its super scenic location and they'd love it and it would be a great business opportunity. Mm. And keep in mind, at this time, he had no idea that Ginger and her family had been completely terrified in this house. Yeah. So he's like, yeah, let's buy it. Let's renovate it. <laughs> Ginger is begging him, please don't buy Summerwind. It's not worth it. Don't do it. But Raymond, he does it anyways. You know, of course. He, <laughs> he even acknowledged like, okay, yeah, maybe this place is haunted. But I, don't, I don't really care. <clears throat> so, <laughs> so he actually, like Brooke mentioned earlier, he claimed that he thought he, that he knew who the identity of the ghost haunting the place was. And it was uh, a man named Jonathan Carver. Uh, Jonathan oh, Carver. Yes. Um, I said Jeremy earlier. <laughs> Jonathan Carver. He's an 18th century British explorer. And Raymond claimed that he might have been haunting Summerwind because he was looking for, um, like, uh, some sort of deed that was hidden within the house. So mm. that, that was his uh, theory. And he even wrote a book on it. It's called The Carver Effect, which came out in 1979. And I actually went on Amazon to see if I could find it. And there is a hardcover selling for $300 and it's oh. very difficult to find. So I saw that. Okay. That's crazy. Right. Yeah. It is not currently in print, so it's really hard to find. But yeah. the funny thing is that he wrote this book and none of the locals took him seriously. They thought that this was some like shit he was making up to, yeah. you know, sure. make money off of. So like Brooke yeah. was saying, it's like some stories in this whole thing is like there's some stretching of truth and people not mm. believing and yeah yeah it's kind of up well, to you to decide I, what you yeah, believe exactly. one other thing too that i read about this period of time and why the locals didn't believe him was that the i guess the von bobers or whatever like raymond and his wife 
never even like went into the mansion. They lived like in a camper on the premises, but they didn't like go into it at all. So they were like, how would he even know that this place is like supposedly haunted? Like he just kind of seemed like he was making it up for clout a little bit. Um, Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. So again, a lot of these stories are just alleged accounts. So yeah. Yeah. Anyways, so Raymond decides he's going to buy Summerwind. And one day he, his son, Carl, his daughter, Ginger, and Ginger's new husband, George, they all went exploring the house. And George actually spots that same closet that I was talking about, allegedly with the skull in it. And so Carl climbs into the space and he takes a look around and it's empty. It's like, what, what happened here? It's like, was the skull ever real was it removed was it by removed by a person was it never there at all so it's right. not quite sure what happened there yeah i mean if you think someone would remove it yeah I don't know, maybe interesting you know what would be super creepy if the dad came back uh and like you know grabbed oh, it oh yeah out of there like you know It'd be crazy <laughs> yeah again it's it's too it's that's just too weird like you know if arnold just said hey oh i gotta get that out of there and went back and got it and then it's like my bunk bed from hell where's the body (laughs) never know never found out who it was if it even existed Ah, that's freaky right oh man i love it anyways so the plans to turn this mansion into a bed and breakfast you can guess it did not go very smoothly. Workers no. got to stay on the job. They were <laughs> complaining that their tools were going missing. They thought they were being watched. And the funny thing is that Marie, who is Raymond's wife, also agreed with their complaints. And she's like, I I can't be in this house. Like, I feel like I'm being followed everywhere I go. So mm. everyone's just completely uncomfortable in this house. So you can kind of sense this reoccurring theme going on. But one of the disturbances that I thought was the most crazy out of all of the stories that I've read is that apparently the rooms in the house would change sizes. So it was impossible to measure them. Wow. Because the construction crews would measure them and then the next day they'd be a completely different size. Like this Mm. one point, Raymond estimated that he could put a restaurant within Summer Wind that would seat 150 people. But then when he compared it to the original blueprints of Summerwind, he realized that the same space would only fit half as many people. So huh. not, not sure what is occurring with that, but the changing of the room sizes, you know, it drove the construction yeah. crews crazy. They didn't want to work on yeah. it. It was too much, you know, too much work to keep mm. remeasuring. Mm. Another interesting. interesting thing I found is that they would take photographs of the house with the same camera only t- a few seconds apart. And there would be variations between the photos, which is interesting. Like one time Raymond took a photo of the living room and compared mm. it with one that Ginger had taken when they lived there in Ginger's photo, it showed these curtains that were hanging up on the windows and she had taken them down when they moved out. But Raymond's photo years later, showed the same curtains in that photo, even though they weren't hung up. So it's like, how is that possible? Yeah. It's very interesting. Yeah, it is interesting. So all these things are going on and 
this is funny, but Life Magazine gets wind of the story. Ha ha. Ha ha. Hard pun. Life Magazine finds out about Summer Wind and the mansion actually makes the top nine most haunted locations in the U.S. They write an article about it. And as you can imagine, the feature got a ton of attention. Um, and it wasn't long where people were, you know, flocking to the house. They wanted to check it out. You know, thrill seekers and teenagers wanting to throw parties in there. And the increased traffic that came to the property, the property just completely put Summerwind into ruin because, you know, no one was really living there, maintaining it. And yeah. that's kind of the start of the demise to the whole building. Mm. Right. That's, that is amazing, uh, Brooke and Megan. I just so much, there's alleged stuff, but it's just so creepy, all the things that they found. And, and it's really interesting to me that Life Magazine came out and did a story on it. I think that's interesting. And just all the owners going back and forth and who owns it and who doesn't own it. That's, that's really I do. Um, I do want to say regarding... So I kind of had, I wanted to mention this towards the end, but I, f I feel like it makes sense here. Yeah, go ahead. I was curious about um, like the timing of everything. Cause I read that that book, the Carver effect came out in 1979 and that the <laughs> life magazine feature just happened to be a year later. And right. I, out of curiosity, looked up when the Amityville horror novel came out <laughs> and it actually came out in 1977 um, oh, so two years before yeah. the Carver effect. Um, so we can discuss this more later, but I just find the timing kind of interesting because to me, yeah, me like, as the, <laughs> like as the Hinshaw family and like the Von Bober family, um, Raymond being Ginger's dad, like, wouldn't it make sense of right. like, let's say your daughter purchased this property that maybe was in disrepair and, they were mm -hmm. having troubles renovating it and yeah. they were losing money on it. Well, right. how about let's tell the story about how Ginger's husband went crazy and did all these yeah. crazy things and put it out as a story about this haunting and then get people mm. to come there and buy the book and be really interested in it. And then all of a sudden you're making money off of this whole story. And, you know, yeah. it's all about how your family was kind of like the heroes in the situation. I don't, I just find it interesting, interesting I will say. Um, so. Absolutely. Because uh, it seems like all of the legitimate stories of hauntings, um, like all the actual like first person cases came from this one family. Like everyone else was like, yeah, we didn't think it was haunted. Yada, yeah. yada, yada. And everything right. kind of stems from the Hinshaws mm -hmm. slash Von Bobers, whatever. Yeah. Um, I just think it's kind of odd that like that everything odd. would only come from that one group, but yeah. But yeah, we can talk about that a little bit yeah, more. We'll, we'll bring that up and everything. Yeah. Uh